Right. Welcome back, everyone. And let's begin the dialogue session. We would like to welcome the speaker for this dialogue, Mr. Bilahari Kausikan, Chairman of the Middle East Institute and former Ambassador at Large, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Moderating this dialogue is Dr. Matthews from IPS. Gentlemen, please. Thank you very much for joining us back in uh, this session. We're very happy that we can have uh, Mr. Bilahari Kausikan to be with us. As we just mentioned, he's chairman of MEI and uh, he formerly was, uh, was ambassador at large. He was also permanent secretary to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for a good number of years. And uh, we're very happy that he has taken the time to be with us. And I'm sure we've got many, many good questions for him. Uh, but first, I, I think Mr. Bilahari has a couple of points and thoughts that we want to ask and share. And I guess you might want to share it from here, Mr. Bilahari. Thank you. Ah, good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you don't conclude that it was an act of completely reckless folly. Uh, but uh, I don't have a speech. I have a few points, perhaps, by way of introduction. And then let's have a dialogue, because this is supposed to be a dialogue. Um, we live in an age where, for a variety of reasons, and maybe we can get into that in the question and answer, identities of various kinds are being quite insistently asserted or reasserted. They can be ethnic identities, religious identities, you know, sexual identities, gender identities, tribal, you, you, you name it. Um, now, identities are not something that are fixed. Uh, they are quite malleable. <laughs> Uh, and most people have multiple identities. You know, for example, you may be a father, that's one identity. You may have a job, that's another identity, and so on, right? But the point is they are malleable. Uh, the Singapore identity, and I'll get into that in a while, may be particularly malleable. Why? Because we are only 53 years old, and that is not a very long time. And it doesn't mean it is not real. I think it is quite real, particularly among younger Singaporeans, but it is still plastic. It can be molded, it can be shaped. And it is quite unique in this part of the world. Why is it unique? It's unique because Singapore essentially organizes itself horizontally on the basis of multiracial meritocracy. That's a horizontal organizing concept. Everybody is equal. Uh, at least in principle. I'm not saying it is perfect in practice. Obviously not. There is no perfection to be found on earth. You want perfection, commit suicide, go to heaven, and maybe you will find it there. All right? If there is a heaven, then you might be rudely surprised. Okay? Uh, and, and that horizontal organization of society is quite unique in the world, and particularly in a world when these identities of various kinds are being asserted, reasserted. Because always, almost always, not for any logical reason, but for, as an observable phenomenon, almost always, there is another concept hidden in the concept of identity, and that's the concept of hierarchy. And you look around us, you can easily find examples. Bumiputra over non-Bumiputra. Pribumi over non-Pribumi. Uh, the Buddhist ethnic Thai over the Malay Muslim Southern Thai citizens. The, the Buddhist Burma, which is the majority race of, of Myanmar, against the Rohingya. 
Even in a very liberal society like Japan, ethnic Japanese over, say, Japanese of Korean ancestry or, or Chinese ancestry. Uh, and I could go on. And it's not, only, it's not only these religious or ethnic identities, you know. Uh, there is the idea that Western political systems are, Western forms of democracy are superior to other forms of democracy or other kinds of political systems. And you can go on. Um, so, our identity, of which this idea of Singapore being organized horizontally on the basis of multiracial meritocracy, is quite unique. And in an age where identities are being, of various kinds are being asserted, um, uh, it is under pressure. There are centrifugal forces trying to pull us apart. There is, for example, an assertion of an Arabized form of Islam over Islam as traditionally practiced in Southeast Asia. There is, for example, the assertion of various types of evangelical Christianity being asserted over not merely the mainstream churches, but other religions. And today I learned a new thing at lunch. Somebody told me there's something called Dominion Theology. And I think the name says it all. You are supposed to dominate. <laughs> okay? Uh, and I could go on. Huh? I could go on. Now, so that these centrifugal forces and the others, you know, because for example, there are assertions that Singapore should adopt a much more Western kind of political identity. And there are, and there are sections of our population for various reasons which are, which are uh, attracted to these various different pools. But I want to focus uh, on one particular pool. Uh, it is a pool of a and attempts of trying to assert a Chinese identity on multiracial Singapore. Anybody, I mean, I spend now, I just retired for a second time. I mean, it's been 37 years in the foreign service. Anybody who has spent any time dealing with China knows that China insistently refers to us as a Chinese country. And we tell them equally insistently we are not a Chinese country. The fact that a large, the majority of our population is Chinese is not the issue. It is that we do not organize ourselves as a Chinese country. Uh, and I've come to the sad conclusion that they just cannot get it. <laughs> no, no, because the idea of a, a multiracial, horizontally organized society is alien. For millennia, they have never organized themselves like that. So it is almost impossible. They may understand it intellectually, but they cannot grasp it emotionally. Uh, uh, you, you just look. I mean, China prices have got 56 or 57 minorities. Most of them are kept for touristic purposes. <laughs> Actually, they are either their way of dealing with minorities for millennia is to make them Han. <laughs> or if, like the Tibetans or the Uyghurs, there are too many of them, uh, suppress them. Uh, anyway, th there is this insistent assertion of a Chinese identity on Singapore. And I say they don't understand. I can give you more examples later. Uh, how does it work? I mean, no. First of all, let me say that China is not unique in this, in this respect. There are many Western countries that have equally, not so persistently, but from time to time, tried to assert a Western political identity on Singapore. And not so long ago, we had a throw out an American diplomat uh, for trying to do so. 
let me take off my jacket. I don't know why this IPS mate told me to wear a jacket. You know, it's, uh, uh, anyway, how does it work? So, you know, and you know, a lot of countries do conduct influence operations, and there's nothing uniquely Chinese about it. Uh, what is uniquely Chinese is the methods and how they go about it. And that is really unique. Um, the uniqueness of Chinese influence operations stems from the very nature of the Chinese state. The Chinese state has three identities. It's a state like any other state, right? And it conducts relations on a state-to-state -state level. You know, normal diplomacy, whether economic diplomacy or whatever, right? But it is also a communist state, a Leninist state. Now, communist ideology in its traditional sense is not very important in China. I don't think there's anybody in China who really believes in it anymore. Uh, there might be a few people in places like Harvard or, you know, the LSC who might still do it, but not in China. However, the structures that derive from that ideology, the nature, the, the idea of a dominant party that, that insists on its absolute supremacy over state and society, that is still a very relevant factor for China and has become much more relevant under Xi Jinping because he has insisted much more than his predecessors on the dominance of the Communist Party, on party discipline, party control, party ideology. His ideology, in, in, in other words. So that's the second character of the Chinese state. And, and its characteristic modus operandi is the United Front. I won't go into details, but there is a United Front work department under the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, which has been strengthened under Xi Jinping. But the third identity of the Chinese state is that it is a civilizational state. It is the exemplar and epitome of millennia of Chinese history and culture. And that, again, has been much more insistently uh, asserted under Xi Jinping in his narrative of the great rejuvenation of China under the Communist Party and his leadership, which is the legitimating narrative of, of the Communist Party and the characteristic of his, his, his era. And the characteristic modus operandi of China as a civilizational state is the Overseas Chinese Affairs Department. Now, just in case anybody was wondering, uh, the objective of, of the Overseas Chinese Work Affairs Department was uh, quite clearly defined by many Chinese leaders. I won't bore you with the details, but you go and look at the collected thoughts of Xi Jinping. In my old age, I've been studying Xi Jinping taught for a new era, and you can find it. The Chinese are quite open and transparent sometimes about what they're up to. And in case there's any doubt, under him, in March this year, the, the United Front Work Department has been placed in charge of the Overseas Chinese Department, organizationally and formally. Now, these three tracks, yeah, these three tracks make for a very powerful, because it's very flexible and very difficult to deal with, uh, instrument of influence to try to shape identity. Why? Because on the first track, the state-to-state -state relationship, it may be, you may be pursuing influence. All countries pursue influence, I remember, right? Me, for example, as a diplomat, I spent my entire career as an agent of influence of the Singapore government. You know, right? A, a legitimate agent. So, on the first track, maybe 
you could use maybe uh, persuasion or, or inducement. You know, if you, if you align your interests with my interests, uh, these things will happen, good things. But on the second track, you may use coercion. If you don't, <laughs> bad things will happen. And the third track, you might use other instruments, maybe, you know, uh, appeals to ethnic pride and so on, right? And so it's a very holistic approach and very difficult to deal with because every government's natural tendency is to focus on the first track and want to keep that first track on an even keel. Unless they do something particularly egregious, <laughs> then you have no choice <laughs> but to take some action. Uh, I'm going to wrap up now. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Right? Um, in August last year, we expelled a Chinese academic uh, who was teaching at Lee Kuan Yew School, name of Wang Jing. Uh, but he was, if you read the MHA statement, it made it very clear that he was a formal agent of influence of uh, intelligence service of a major country. The major country was not named, and let me tell you, I emphasize, I do not know which is a major country, but let me give you three facts. Wang Jing, by his own admission, had dual US and Chinese citizenship. Dual citizenship is not allowed under Chinese law. Wang Jing has told many people, and it is uh, not a secret, that he is now holding a senior academic position in China with no sanction. So you go and draw your own conclusion. Huh? Now that was going too far, so we had to take action. And, you know, that, that he was spreading certain lines. And the lines were basically various lines, but let me show, tell you how it works, right? How it works is there is a general narrative. China's rise is inevitable, America's rise is, um, is equally inevitable, so get on the right side of history. That's one line. Then there are specific lines. Singapore is a small country, you are a Chinese country, of course you should be on our side rather than that side. Uh, and there are various sub-things within, so that's the overall narrative. Now it's a powerful narrative because it's not entirely wrong, you know. <laughs> it is just extremely simplified to be such a grotesque distortion of much more complicated and complex reality. And most people are not particularly interested in, in, in you know, foreign affairs. They have only a cursory interest or they follow it in a very superficial way. Can't blame them. Why should they, right? Uh, and so it is plausible. Within that line, then you use various other instruments. The instrument of persuasion or inducement. Oh, if you support us, you know, economic rewards might follow. But if you don't support us, maybe you will be punished. There's appeals to ethnic pride. And the object of this is not to tell you what to do, you know. The object of this is to manipulate your thinking so you will do what is right without being told. Because after all, if China's rise is inevitable and America's rise is equally inevitable, why should you not get on the right side of history? Well, and it's very difficult to deal with because, you know, these, these lines on the state-to-state on the -state track, something may be happening which should be quite good, but this may be happening on different tracks. Uh, and you can't grasp it in its entirety. It's very difficult until you go too far. And they do go too far. Okay, and so you have to sometimes take tough actions and draw red lines. And we did when we expelled this guy. And let me tell you a story. It does work. There is a very senior Chinese businessman with extensive interest in China. I know him slightly, you know, but he had not got in touch with me for more than a decade. Now, shortly after Huang Jing was uh, expelled, I got nothing to do with it, you know, but I had been talking about Chinese influence operations 
ever since I retired and was free to talk. Uh, um, he had not, I mean, I know him casually, I've seen him here and there, but he had not contacted me for more than 10 years. Almost immediately after August last year, he called my PA and said, let's ask Bilari for lunch. So I got a bit curious, but I said, okay, let's keep him waiting, let's see how persistent he is. So I kept putting him off for two, three weeks. He kept coming back. Finally, I had lunch with him, just two of us. He spent the entire lunch telling me how patriotic he was. Now, why? Why? Because he was obviously one of those, and he was known to that, carrying water for China. And he was scared. <laughs> so it does work. It does happen around you. Huh? And it is, I think, the greatest foreign policy challenge that uh, we face. Now, again, China is one that must, does it much more deliberately. I want to emphasize they are not unique. You know, I told you there is this assertion of a certain kind of Christian identity. There's an assertion of a certain kind of Muslim identity. There isn't, there's even, I had a friend who was in the Indian Foreign Service, and then I heard, he had just retired, about the same time as retired, then I heard he was looking at the Indian diaspora and thinking, hey, maybe this is a good way to, in, to build influence, you know? So I told him, friend, please, whatever you do, don't. Huh? <laughs> if not, uh, you know, things will get very nasty <laughs> for you. Uh, so, and the West, of course, under Mr. Trump, they are not particularly interested in promoting their own ideology, but that is an exceptional situation which is not going to last. So there are all these forces, but the Chinese one, I think, is the most immediate and the most dangerous because, it, I told you, it asserts one, a Chinese identity on a multiracial Singapore, and it threatens if it succeeds. And there are numbers of Singaporeans who are attracted to this for a variety of reasons. It may be purely transactional reasons, or it could be misplaced ethnic pride. <laughs> uh, but whatever the reason is irrelevant because it does threaten what makes Singapore unique. And I'll stop here and take your question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Bilhari. And uh, that was very, very insightful. And uh, the whole issue about the assertion of identities. Uh, I think the, many of you have probably have some questions and I see some of you who would like to come up to the mic and ask some questions. Uh, you can just please proceed to the mic and uh, we'll take some questions if you can. Madam Molia, there, if you can have anybody else who's got some questions, if you can get to the mics. And, uh, Good afternoon, sir. I'm from uh, Molia from education. Sorry, I, I, I couldn't hear you. Molia. From education sector. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, th this whole day we talk about um, uh, individual identity, community identity, society identity, internal identity, Singaporean identity. You have just shared with us about the probab probable threat to our national identity. I just wonder if um, while we talk about deliberate and sometimes even argue on what that Singaporean identity is, um, is that a vulnerability to our national identity as perceived by countries like China? Well, first of all, I think there is, as I said, the Singapore identity is still malleable, right? Now, I think you have to talk about it because there are attempts, some are spontaneous, Okay, for example, there is, I, I mentioned there is the assertion of uh, Arabized form of Islamic identity on, in Southeast Asia as a whole, actually. Yeah? 
uh, globally, actually, after 1979, the Iranian Revolution, and the Saudis felt threatened, and they, they started propagating this. But it's not so simple as saying it's the Saudis just going around giving money, you know? Because we don't, they don't give money in Singapore. We are not allowed to. But there is still um, this phenomenon, in not, as, not as stark as it is in Malaysia, for example, uh, or in Central Asia where I've been traveling, but there is this phenomenon. For example, I have, uh, I don't get offended, I don't mean to offend you, right? I sometimes, when I see somebody wearing what you're wearing, I ask them, what do you call this? And then I, if they say hijab, I say, why you use an Arab word when you have a good Malay word called tudong? And then I notice, we just finished Ramadan and Hari Raya, right? I notice more and more people are saying Eid Mubarak rather than <laughs> Selamat Hari Raya, right? Why? <laughs> Why? Uh, and it's not somebody told you to do it, you know, <laughs> right? It is a different atmosphere. And you can, you can see this in other religions, you know? Uh, uh, you can see. So you have to talk about it. Particularly when there are deliberate attempts to manipulate your mind to accept a particular identity or another. Because once you are aware that this is happening, I think you become less vulnerable. You know? Okay, there will still be some section of our population that may want to adopt a much more Chinese rather than Singaporean identity. Well, but that's one thing. It's another thing to allow yourself to be used. <laughs> to be manipulated. So you have to talk about it. You can't not talk about it. Because even if you don't talk about it, it's still going to go on, you know. The centrifugal forces of various ethnicities, of various religions are still going to go on because that's a global phenomenon. The more deliberate attempts by one country or another to influence your identity, to shape it, are going to go on. So why you stick your head in the ground like an ostrich doesn't mean you're free from danger. It just means you're ignoring it, that's all. Thank you. <clears throat> Other questions there? Thank you. Hi, Mr. Bilhari. I'm I can't Lim hear you, sorry. <clears throat> I'm Lim Sui Kim from Fencing, Singapore. I have a from question. Where? Fencing. Fencing. Oh, okay. Sports. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a question, and it relates to the, uh, I suppose, the sporting ecosystem, uh, which we, overall, Singapore, I think we're trying to build it up. Um, what? Build it up. Is sports, yeah, sports. Like okay. fencing or football or whatever. Lah. Huh? But one of the challenges uh, I found in this area is that there seems to be a lot of um, pressure to take in foreigners. Yeah, it's like because Singaporeans, we're not good enough or our people need to study hard. And then um, the executive committees are given nominations of foreign teenagers and say that, hey, why don't you sponsor them to become Singaporeans? And they're only 14 or 15. Oh. And uh, so we say, where are their parents? Oh, their parents are at home. Yeah. So how would you suggest that we address this issue? No, I'm really the wrong person, you know, because I have totally zero interest in any sport. Also, for businesses, you're like... Maybe okay, drinking, another... that's a sport to me. And I... <laughs> Okay, maybe another example for banking. Okay, no, I think I get where you're, you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, although I know nothing about sports. Huh? Sure. Uh, you know, you can't have everything, right? If you, I mean, this is like commonsensical to me, 
But you know this this fuss over this boy, what's his name? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the footballer. Uh, right? Yeah. It seems to me like emblematic, you know. So let him choose, lah. If he doesn't want to be a Singapore citizen, leave, lah. You know, I mean, what's the big deal, right? Yes. But I think there are certain there are certain obligations to being a male Singaporean, right? And you and others have done it, you know. So what's so special about Fulham, you know? Fulham, to my mind, is a rather tatty London suburb, which I wouldn't want to be associated with. But I didn't know. I didn't even know there was a football club until this so bloody thing, you know, came out, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's. A question of where your priorities are. You can't have everything, right? Yes. Most so I, parents I, want their children to do well in school. Yes. Right? So I think, I think what, what you... So therefore, something got to give, right? So I, I don't... Yeah, it's a problem. It's a dilemma. Yeah. I suppose if we took all our resources, we changed our, our societal priorities and put it all on sports, maybe we didn't have, wouldn't have to import this kind of foreign talent. Right? Maybe. I don't know. Because it's not a God-given thing that more money, more this and more that uh, will make better sportsmen. You know, there's something called innate talent, you know. And maybe we don't have it, maybe we have it, maybe we haven't discovered it yet uh, or something, right? But then something will have to give. That means your, your, you know, your, edu your educational system must be modified in a different way, right? And that will have downstream consequences. So it's what most people want, right? I, I, I really cannot go further because I'm quite ignorant about this thing, really. <laughs> so, thank you very much. <laughs> Estella, yeah. Hi, Mr. Bilal Harry. I'm Estella, a year three global studies student in the US. Hmm. So, my question is when I was seeing the rise of identity politics around the world yeah. and how China is being observed, it tends to influence the diaspora overseas. So, beyond its political implications, how do you think this can impact the racial harmony and cultural harmony in Singapore? And how do you think the government and the people can respond to this? Well, the impact on the racial harmony, if it goes too far, is obviously not going to be good, you know. Because I told you, embedded in the idea of identity, concealed in it, is the idea of hierarchy. Uh, uh, and if, it, if the Chinese identity is um, imposed on Singapore, there is an idea of hierarchy in there. <laughs> right? Not very well concealed, actually. Okay. Um, the Chinese are doing things which I really cannot understand. I can only explain it by saying that Xi Jinping has concentrated so much power that you know, what he says goes irrespective of whether it's a wise move. They are blurring the distinction between the Huaren and Hua Chao, which they made themselves in 1955 for good reason. Those reasons are still very valid because you know that the position of overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, for example, is and always will be a very sensitive one. Why did they do these things? And you can find examples of similar behavior. This one is a particularly stark example. Huh? All around Southeast Asia, I've been traveling in Central Asia a lot since I retired. You can find the same thing there. You can find all over the world. It, it is a very dangerous thing, not just dangerous to, let's say, us, right? Uh, but it's dangerous to China. Two, right? But why they, they are doing it? What can we do about it? Well, as I said during my opening remarks, maybe not sufficiently coherently, when they do something particularly egregious, then the government has to draw a red line, as we have done, right? Uh, by the way, it's, it's not a new thing, you know, by the way. Huh? Uh, how many of you remember the Eastern Sun affair? 
Not you, Thailand. I know you do. Huh? You're old enough. And, <laughs> huh? You know what is that? No, no. In the late 60s, and in 1971, we arrested a few people who used to work for the former Chinese newspaper, Nanyang Sampau. Uh, there were a number of people who had taken money, and this one it was revealed that, uh, long ago, you know, taken money from the Chinese intelligence organization to start a newspaper, English language newspaper in Singapore called the Eastern Sun. And the instructions were to promote a very favorable image of communist China. Um, well, we caught them, they were arrested in the ISA. But what's interesting about this um, affair, two of the people detained, uh, one was a Chinese Muslim convert. The other had been a strong supporter of the Kuomintang. In fact, the Muslim convert had also been a strong supporter of the Kuomintang. What, the, what does it mean? Why did they play along? Well, part of it is money, <laughs> right? But it, to me, looking back at it and reading the old press statements and so on, it shows that the, the ethnicity was stronger than either religion or political identity. And is that still the case? I kind of suspect it is, you know. Uh, and that's very dangerous. So what can the government do? The government is always going to be constrained because the government, unless you do something terribly egregious, uh, 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 will want to keep things on an even keel and so on. So what can you, what can you do? It's like people like me, you know, going capo around and, you know, and tell people like you that this is happening. Look around you. You, you will not uh, find it difficult to find examples, actually. <laughs> And aware citizens is the best defense. Because as I said, if you know that somebody is trying to psychologically manipulate you, you either have to be particularly obtuse or particularly corrupt to allow yourself to be manipulated. So once you're aware, it doesn't work so well. Uh, that, that's what we can do. But it's going to go on. The Eastern Sun affair was late 1960s. We had just been independent. And from that moment, they, they, they tried. Then they paused. I think now they are in a pause again. Uh, but if, you know, a, a while ago, I mean, I gave a, a week ago, actually, <laughs> I, I gave a longer version of what I just said to you and a more coherent version in a speech to OCBC. I think OCBC is probably regretting they asked me to speak to them, but never mind. Too bad. They never asked me what I'm going to speak about. <laughs> right? Well, I see the response. Well, quite a lot of the response was fairly favorable. But you got people who, well, abusive, I don't, I, I don't care. No, I'm not exactly not abusive myself, huh? so I, I really don't care. But there are people who are extremely ignorant. They had bought a narrative of Chinese history. It is the official narrative of Chinese history. Huh? Oh, China never does these things because it's such a peaceful country. Go and look at Chinese history. It's such a peaceful country. Okay, good. <laughs> if you believe it, well done. If you believe it, I have this bridge I can sell you. You know, very cheap. There's a guy there. Thanks, from IPS. Yeah. Now, a few terms have been used throughout uh, since being on this, this forum uh, regarding Muslims, the uh, words exclusivity. And you mentioned yourself about Arabization uh, and, uh, of the Muslims. Now, 
let's say I'll play the devil's advocate and I'll say there's a need to assimilate uh, the Malays in this country to be more mainstream, so to speak. Now, if that were to happen, which model would you follow? Let's say in China, they came down hard on the Muslims, the Uyghurs, you know, no beards, don't fast during Ramadan. Or would you be more subtle, like the Indonesians, uh, not so much with the Muslims, but the Chinese back then, where, you know, they, they, they made them uh, use names, mainstream names, but the names uh, don't really make a difference. I mean, in your mind, what would be a good model to follow? First, let me make one comment. Huh? The Indonesians were far from subtle. Huh? Okay, there were riots, there were people killed not so long ago, but from the 1960s. So not allowed to use Chinese names or that is the minor, this is the minor part. Huh? Uh, I don't know, that model uh, is actually for the Muslim community to, uh, to decide for itself, you know. I, I mean, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not even religious, <laughs> so how the hell do I know, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> of any religion, you know. Uh, I mean... It's also for the Christians to decide, it's also for the Hindus to decide, it's also for the Buddhists to decide. There, are, there is such a thing as, you know, uh, radical Buddhism and radical Hinduism. It's oxymoron, actually, by the terms of the, the religion, but it does exist as a phenomenon, not so far from us. And even in little bits in Singapore, I have noticed. Um, the fact is, you live, if you live in a, in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society, everybody got to make some compromise. Right? And that some of all the compromises made for everybody is the common space. And it is the job of the state, the government, to defend that common space. Uh, but, uh, and the, you know, and because there will always be the centrifugal force, there will always be attempts by at least some parts of each community to enroach into that common space. Uh, uh, but what are the compromises? Some can be prescribed, you know, like the call to prayer in the morning should not be too loud lah, because not everybody wants to wake up at 5. For me, I don't care. I wake up at 4.30, so it's, it's all right. <laughs> anyway, right? Uh, for Christians, maybe something else, the evangelical types. And I, you know, I think it is as serious an issue as uh, the Arabization phenomenon. You ask me, my personal view. Um, I think... The idea that Singapore should adopt a Western political identity is also a dangerous one, in a different way. Uh, but as far as religious matters are concerned, it has to be primarily the members of that faith <laughs> to decide what is acceptable. Right? I think, for example, what the Chinese are doing in, in Xinjiang uh, is particularly stupid, I think. I, I told a Chinese friend, and I do have some, you know, PRC there, PRC friend. I say, look, you know, why you all do this thing? The Yugas had an identity of, it's about identity, it's not about religion in that case. The Yugas had an identity of which Islam was a very small part. You do all these things, you're making the thing bigger than, than it used to be, right? They, more than the, more than the Yugas, what scares the Chinese even more is the Hui. The Hui was like their ideal Muslim. They are basically Han who uh, adopted Islam, right? There are more of them than there are Yugas, by the way, and they are scattered all over China. And they are also being influenced by becoming more pious. For example, Hui women are covering their head now. 
Now they are, they are, they, are, they never ate pork, but now they are being a bit more strict about praying, <laughs> for example, right? So they, that scares the Chinese much more than the Uyghurs. Uyghurs, I think, they have basically given up. They're just trying to suppress them. Uh, ring off Xinjiang. The surveillance state is there, and, and just try to contain it. Right? I don't think they will succeed, because I told I told my um, Chinese friends. Look, there's one thing you don't know. First, it is identity, not religion. And religion is only part of identity, but if you try to suppress it, it becomes a bigger part. <laughs> right? The other thing is, I told him, as far as I can see, this is the first time in world Islamic history there is really a, glo a global umrah. It exists on the internet. How are you going to stop it? Your great firewall of China is full of holes because the offense is always going to be better than the defense. You plug one hole, something else opens up, right? And whatever you're doing, you know, the things you mentioned and others, huh, for example, is going to make it worse. They're getting into serious trouble in Central Asia. Why? Because if a, a, a Kazakh citizen who is Kazakh happens to go to China, he may find himself arrested. Never mind he's not a citizen of the PRC and disappear into a re-education camp. There are many such cases. I've been traveling in Uzbeks also, because these are nomadic peoples, they span borders, you know. Um, they have always spanned borders, they have always moved back and forth. They, I'm not talking about the educated people, these are normal folk, right? They, they, what border, what is it? It's a meaningless concept to them, you know. Uh, so they are getting into trouble. Now for us, I think everybody has to decide what every group uh, it's not just religious groups, you know, by the way. It's not just ethnic groups. For example, there is some Singaporeans who believe that, what's that, 377A, uh, criminalizing male homosexuality should be abolished. I also think so. Uh, but there are large numbers of Singaporeans who, for one reason or another, don't think so. Uh, basic fundamentalist Christians and some Muslims, they don't think so, right? So, people like me who think this way, we should know that we are the, not the majority mainstream. So, you know, as long as it is not enforced, and that is the government's position, it is on the books but not enforced, all right, it's not perfect, but I told you, you want perfection, commit suicide and hope there's a heaven. So, I, I can't really answer your question for you. You must answer your question for yourself. And I, and I, I will bet you anything that different Muslims will have different Answers, right? Not that necessarily that those answers will be, will be intrinsically contradictory, but even within the community, you've got to find your own compromise. I would think that something that some Muslims in Malaysia are doing that you can't even wish people Happy New Year, or, you know, that's to my mind ridiculous. Uh, that you are not allowed, if you are not a Muslim, to use the word Allah to refer to God. Actually, I told an Arab friend, right? about this, because he heard vaguely. So I told him about this, and then he said, how you call God? <laughs> there are Arab Christians also, they say, Allah, you know? So I say, you go and tell Malaysia, you don't have to convince me, you know? So, communities must make their own internal compromises and compromises with uh, other communities. That's not something I can tell you what the answer is. I can tell you where the clear red lines are, you know? I mean, the, the, the things that are Clearly, you cannot do whatever, whether you're Muslim, Christian, Hindu, or what, those are actually quite obvious, right? But between the clarity and everyday life, there are, there are many, many 
compromises to be negotiated. <laughs> in fact, sometimes on a daily basis. Other questions here? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mark. Uh, I'm a classical leader. Uh, my question particularly arose uh, following up on some of the ones regarding China and Chinese uh, and so on. Huh? Uh, when I first joined the classrooms, uh, I went to the first meeting and in the meeting I discovered that a lot of things were discussed in Chinese. Yeah. And uh, the end of the evening, the point to ask one of the participants who knows English well to sit next to me to explain what's yeah. being discussed in Chinese. Yeah. In the later meetings that I have to I started to define that there were other members who were from the Malay and Indian who were supposed to attend the meeting, and I asked them why is it they were attending the meeting, and the answer was that they always discuss things in Chinese, so no one's in there. So I said, no, okay, next time you better be there to show our presence, and definitely they cannot be putting one of the for everybody, and they will start the meeting in English now. And that is exactly what happened at the following meeting. At the following meeting, they simply decided that from now on we should all aspire to speak to English. But at the end of the session, one of the Chinese came to me and asked me, Man, how long have you been in Singapore? I said, 45 years. So 45 years you stay here, you don't know how to speak Chinese then? So you ask her, like, you know to speak Tamil now. It's a matter, as a matter of policy, in official meetings, we speak in English. Um, if you are having coffee with somebody in China or somewhere, then you know, you speak whatever language you want. Huh? But as a matter of official policy, for example, our PM, PM is, our PM is perfectly bilingual. Right? No, but he doesn't. He speaks in English. You, all of this is a policy. It's a, it's a state policy. It's not, it's not a, a matter of personal preference, you know? So I wouldn't be too. Okay, uh, your grassroots, I think you should complain to your MP. La, tell him, you know? <laughs> you want me to work for you, you better go and enforce this, uh, something like that, you know? No, look, look, I think we should not also be. Okay, I'm even a minority of minority. My father is Indian, my mother is Chinese. So what the hell am I? I don't know. So, okay, in Chinese, my mother is Pranakan somewhere, right? So, so you know, so I, I, I am notoriously thick-skinned, so I don't give a shit, right? Basically, right? Okay, I know not everybody is like me, right? But I think some of these things are unconscious, right? And, you know, you should be a bit tolerant in, in, in things like, okay, grassroots meeting, I think you have a valid point, but you should complain to MP, you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, but if you go to a hawker center, the guy speaks to you in Hokkien, where I happen to know how to, to reply to him, sometimes forcefully if I don't like him. <laughs> but, uh, but even just to order things also I can. Uh. But that's me, right? So this is part of this 
daily negotiated compromises that you have to make. But as a matter of state policy, yes, we speak in English. Now, mind you, uh, that has to be reiterated over and over again because not too long ago, there was a fairly senior civil servant who told me he didn't understand why we had to do this. Uh, thank goodness you are uniquely you. Sorry? Um, you are uniquely you, and there's only one of well, you. You are you. uniquely you, and there's only one of you either. Okay. Unless you are um, a clone, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Uh, friend, huh? I can vouch what ambassador say because when the first two groups of Chinese visited China, the first thing Raja told them is when you go to China, speak in English yeah. because you are not Chinese. You are Singaporean Chinese. Thank you. Well, I'll put it this way, lah. I'll put it this way. I think it is a very natural human instinct to have some pride in ethnicity, in your own, in, in your culture or your, what you imagine is your culture. It is quite natural. It, it, it's nothing unusual. In fact, it would be unusual if you didn't have it in some degree. Right? But the line between legitimate pride and chauvinism can be a very thin one. And many people may step across it uh, unconsciously. But what I do know is that, you know, the government does take these things very seriously. Uh, I think it is a policy, I don't think I'm, repay, I'm, uh, I'm betraying any secret that the, if there is any incident, even like, you know, staring isn't pushing and thing, that has a racial overturn, it is automatically reported to the security authorities to have a look into it. Is it just two idiots having a fight or is it something more? So people do take this. This kind of system that we have has to be continually defended. It's never going to be a time when you say, okay, job done, don't have to worry about it. Never. Because it will be contrary to human nature. It's contrary to these global trends that are asserting centrifugal forces. It's contrary to the nature of international politics where various major powers are going to try to exert influence. So it has to be continuously defended. And as I say again, at the, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the best defense if you are aware of it. No, if you're looking for a time then we say job done, everybody, you know, uh, you know we accept this wholeheartedly and you know, everybody accepts it, uh, job done, you know, that's, that's seeking for perfection on earth. Gentleman at the back there. From where, sorry? Oh, okay, sorry. I'm terribly ignorant, not just about sports, about other things too. So, my question is more at individual level, because we have a community talking about foreign affairs. Two contradictory forces now. Yeah. One force is the national uh, 
narrative or political narrative yeah. trying to say that we are Singaporean. But another force is the, the ethnicity part. Uh, it seems to, when it comes to national level, countries are getting more uh, protections, right? But when it comes to community, I think the social media and all, we, we draw more connections. So for example, the Malays in Singapore, for example, now can you know, have relatives in Malaysia and Indonesia and stuff like that. So as an individual, how do you uh, manage this seemingly two contradictory forces in terms of your identity as a national, a national citizen of Singapore and also the ethnicity part? Because for example, we've been talking about the Arabizations of uh, Muslim, but how if these people, I mean the Muslims in Singapore, they are Arabs by, by race, they are not Malays by race, because Dr. Maria, for example, she, she has some Arab ancestry. Yeah. And the fact that we're talking about Salah, Kairaya, how about the Muslim community from India, the Indian Muslim communities who don't use Malay at all? So they may have to draw connections with whatever happens in India, and seemingly in yeah. Asia, politics are interwoven with, with ethnicity, with culture. So how do we, kind of, as an individual, manage these two forces? Well, you put your hands on the problem because social media has changed a lot of things. It has made this, uh, the revival of these connections much more simple. It has changed actually the nature of immigration. Because in, in the past, if you immigrate, uh, let's say uh, the, all the Arabs in Singapore, in Southeast Asia, uh, came from the Yemen, one part of Yemen, the Hydromon, right? When, and all the Chinese, maybe they come from southern China, most of them, right? And Indians usually from, that, uh, thing, uh, from the southern, in the Tamil, uh, Tamil areas, right? In the past, if you leave, uh, you leave, you know? You, even if you want to maintain connections, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, you can write letters now and then, you can go and visit if you have the means. Not everybody had, right? But now you never really leave. Because of social media, because of uh, you know the ease of communication, you you really never leave any country. You bring your country with you. Then you create little pockets of that country, all over the place. It is an issue, uh, uh, under researched, under studied issue, of how the nature of immigration, the nature of these connections, have has changed profoundly because of social media. And there, is another, and there is another effect of social media. It creates echo chambers. You only listen to what you think you already know. And I emphasize, you think you already know, because usually what people think they know is wrong, you know? <laughs> uh, and it is a problem, but what are you going to do? You can't unlearn these technologies. You can't cut yourself out from these technologies. So all you can do is to be aware of these downsides, if you like, of these technologies. Now, how is the individual going to find a compromise? I can't answer for you. Everybody's got to find their own solution to this thing, you know, uh, on a daily basis. It's an unsatisfactory answer. But I can't, I can't tell, I, okay, I have my own, my own sets of values, my own way of dealing with this. You may have another way. Uh, as long as our ways are not totally at variance with what is the national common space? It's okay, it's fine. But you have to find your own way. Yeah. So I'm that Your what? Your, are you from Hydroman last time? Uh? I must know your family, man, because I know a lot of Aljunis. Uh, all related, right? <laughs>
your solution and more people should have their solution and maybe something like that but uh, it won't be everybody's solution right so um, so that comes back to the point I just made in the, to the uh, previous questions everybody has to negotiate their own compromise their own solution uh, and then the community as a whole and then the country as a whole right uh, but it has to start from the individual of course Any other questions that you have? I see a gentleman there. Hello, hi. My name is Ashraf. I'm from OnePeople.sg. I'm not an Arab. I'm a Malay. I'm sitting in the center, not in the corner. So we need to address some of the stereotype. Now, usually among our dialogue, uh, my minister, uh, recent dialogue with Minister Chan Mugam, a lot of the ministers usually use this comparison between the Singaporean Malays are actually doing better than the Malaysian Malay. So why is this obsession of comparing between the Singaporean Malays and the Malaysian Malay. Now, obviously, we are doing very well in comparison. We are a first world country. The Malays are a developing country. So what, how come do they usually come up with such comparison? Thank you. You mean our ministers? Well, you got to ask them, man, you know what I mean? But <laughs> I, I think it is because, actually, uh, the Malaysians themselves make such comparisons. They don't do it as insistently as they used to, but it used to be, uh, you know, like almost routine. Uh, you know, if there's an election, they will say in one way or the other, sometimes more explicitly, you know, if you don't support Barisan National or AMNO or whatever it is, uh, you will end up like the Singapore Malays. <laughs> right? It, they didn't use it too much in the last couple of elections. But now that the redoubtable Dr. Mahathir is back, I would not be surprised because that is champion tactic. Huh? <laughs> uh, just a question that is kind of related. Huh? I, I haven't told my Malaysian Chinese friends because they are still in a state of euphoria, you know, a bit drunk actually. <laughs> but I tell you as Singaporeans that what happened there is a change of government, it's not a change of system. Look at the demographics. The demographics of Malaysia are against the non-Malays, the Chinese. Indians have been actually irrelevant in Malaysian politics for a long time. Don't tell them because they haven't got the memo yet, but <laughs> that has been the fact for a long time. The Chinese are down to just about 24% of the population. And it is falling. Right? The last election was essentially Pakatan has been around for at least 10 years or more. 
He had made very little headway until a 93-year-old Malay nationalist, who is actually half mama, <laughs> uh, entered the fray. His party was deregistered, but do you know what his party is called or not? Huh? Ah, Patai Bersatu Pribumi, uh, Patai Bersatu Pribumi Malaysia. Uh, the Indigenous People's Unity Party of Malaysia. Right? So, the last election was between Najib's Amno and Mahathir's Amno and a different, uh, a different guys. Huh? And we passed hanging around on the side. And increasingly, I can predict, please don't tell your Malaysian Chinese friends, they are still in that euphoric state, you know? <laughs> Uh, but after a euphoric state comes the hangover, huh? <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> okay, uh, but I look, at, you look, I look at the demographics, it cannot be otherwise. Do you think Dr. Mahathir is going to say, okay, I was wrong, no more Bumiputra privileges? He may temper with it on the edge. And he ought to, he tried the last time. The last time he was Prime Minister, actually, people forgot. Huh? I mean, I... The last time he was Prime Minister, he did try to modify the Bumiputra policy in minor ways on the edge. For example, university admissions to science faculties and engineering faculties, and he wanted to emphasize more, more use of English. That's towards the end of the first time he was Prime Minister. He failed. Okay, maybe he will try again that kind of things, and it, they ought to do it because we need Malaysia to do well. Incidentally, uh, Mahathir can be a bit irritating from time to time uh, with the water thing and so on. Uh, but without him, that whole system is going to fall apart. He's holding it together. So we better wish him long life, okay? Sorry, can I ask a second question? Sir, I'd like to uh, pick up brains on this or, or, or listen to your, to your uh, take of this. Um, in your experience of working with two, three generations of politicians and then with politicians all over the world and, and your experience in government, <clears throat> is there a generational difference in terms of the, uh, I wouldn't say preoccupation, but concerned with the Singapore identity? Is there a concern? Is there a difference between my generation and my children's generation in terms of this identity thing of Singapore? Singapore. Secondly, um, um, if there is the concern, then what should we do about it? Well, yeah, there is difference because I think 53 years is not a long time in the history of a country. But that identity, that multiracial identity, uh, the horizontal identity, I like to call it, huh? has become much more entrenched than it was in 1965, obviously, right? Uh, but it is not, it's not unassailable, and it will probably never be completely unassailable because of the various things I have talked about. Uh, so different generations of politicians will have to deal with it in different ways, right? Uh, I don't think the influence operations, whether by the West or by the Chinese or by some things, that goes on, is embedded in the very nature of international politics, right? Uh, it takes different iterations, but that's constant. But this new factor, which I think is going to be with us for some time, is this global reassertion of identity. Uh, and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. So that's something a different generation uh, Okay, the very early generation, Lee Kuan Yew and all that, maybe they had to deal with it too, but in a different way. 
Now it is a different way because of something that the gentleman mentioned, social media, the immediacy of you know, your, your past, let's put it this way, that you never really leave a country, even you left, the country follows you, <laughs> whether you like it or not, right? So that's new things. These are new, new iterations of fairly constant themes uh, in our history. Uh, how they're going to deal with it, you know, you better ask them. Like, you, all, you know, <laughs> I am fortunately not, I am a pensioner, so I just observe and pontificate. <laughs> Eugenia. cannot reconcile. I know you're academic, like Eugene. You always think that there's a perfect solution. No, there's no perfect solution. <laughs> you can't reconcile certain things. That's as simple as that. You just have to manage them. Huh? I mean, that's a simple answer. You have to engage China. You cannot shun China. You'd be damn stupid to do it, right? But you must be aware that this happens. And there's, there's no way to reconcile them. They can be managed. That's all. This is part of the reality. That's like, you know, it, 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 you, you can't say that, aha, this is the secret recipe that everything is solved. This is the way to deal with China. No, there is no such thing. So, so do you know whether your, your former colleagues are doing anything to create this awareness or uh, are you an agent How of the state? I'm an agent of Singapore as a citizen. Oh, why, why, why? I mean, I don't really understand your, your question because to me, it is in the nature of the beast that, that you have to engage them. Foolish if you're not, but you have to engage them with a certain awareness that there are these downsides. Sure. Wait. Because, you see, the, the, the ordinary Singaporeans may not, understand, may not be able to see, see this right? because you know, on the one hand, you need to be careful of Influence of. Hmm. But at the same time, the may look at the many levels of engagement in China, right? So they will say, well, you know, where, where is it? Well, oh, that is, that, what is truth? Huh? Pontius Pilate asked Jesus Christ 3,000 years ago, didn't get a straight answer. And there's still no straight answer today. No, no, you are an educator. It is up to people like you to tell your students that the life is complex. There are no perfect solutions. The political science theory is rubbish. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know you're not, but I couldn't resist that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It, yeah, you are right in pointing to the problem because as I said in my opening sort of remarks, most people don't take a very deep interest in international affairs. China's rise, yes, that's a geopolitical fact. Is China without problems? No. China has got very serious problems. Uh, the Belt and Road has got very serious problems. It's already running into those problems. But do people know this? Most people don't, because those people don't take a very deep interest in these things. Does this mean that we will have to shun China? Of course not. 
Life is complicated. And it is, you know, I mean, some of you are grassroots leaders. You should go and spread the word, you know. Uh, because there is a limit to what a foreign ministry can do. The foreign ministry has to keep things on an even keel, uh, at least in public. When I was Permsec, there are many times I had to go and school various countries, not just China, for crossing lines. We never made it public. And those journalists here, please don't report this, because then you will all come and ask me which countries and all that, and I will lie to you, I tell you now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, the, the, this is the very difficulty. Life is complicated, uh, and it's also complex. Complex and complicated, not the same thing, huh? you, you know that, right? But the human mind always looks for simplicity, because you can't deal with too much complexity. So you like to look for formulas to impose on a complicated and complex world, and that is a distortion in itself. But, you know, that's part of being human, uh, and that's part of what you as an educator must do. The government has a role. Each individual has a role. Uh, I, as a pensioner, also have a role. Uh, no, this, there's no other way to deal with this. Yeah? How can we ensure that you know, we don't look at uh, you know, new citizens from China, orange from China, let's say, or people working in China, uh, who come from China or working in living here, if we don't look at them as Trojan horses? Well, that's again up to you. Uh. You have to make discriminations. Look, some may well be, but most probably are not. So you can't go around in a complete state of paranoia all the time. Uh, but don't forget, uh, paranoia is uh, sometimes also right. You have to be aware. You have to be alert. That's a different thing. You, you are again looking for perfect solutions. How do you ensure that we don't think? There's no way of ensuring it. It's up to you. <laughs> I think we have a question. From no, I know you are. Okay, but, but there is no perfect solution to these things. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Thanks for the time, Shelley. Uh, I really enjoy your Facebook postings. I think you've been there. Me? Controversial? My question is going back to the previous question on social media and how people have migrated back to Singapore, from Singapore, but they never left the whole country. Well, I think I, I have said this many times. I think we do a really bad job of national education for a start. Among Singaporeans, forget about immigrants and things like that. No? Among Singaporeans also we do a very bad job of national education. Uh, uh, because it's very formalistic the way we do it. And I've always wondered whether it does any good, you know. Uh, secondly, I think we made a very fundamental mistake in de-emphasizing the study of history, our own history, uh, in our schools. I was just having lunch with some uh, uh, people doing their PhD from, uh, from Singapore, and they, are both, they happened to be both historians. And they told me that you can, it is quite possible to go through, uh, get a history degree, we may be doing one survey course of uh, Southeast Asian history, that's it. 
Well, after that, you can, you can you know, study the history of cinema or something like that and, and get a degree, which is ridiculous. But there's a global trend of academics making themselves irrelevant. <laughs> so we can do something about it. It is not that you are thinking, but I, I think people have been relooking the history curriculum in our schools. Uh, I think we can do a much better job of national education. I think we can do a much better job of when, you know, uh, somebody becomes a PR or wants to become a new citizen, we can do a much better job of at least telling them certain basic things about Singapore. Now, whether it will take root or not, who knows, right? All right but you can at least do a better job of conveying certain things. All that we can do. Huh? So it's not that you are completely without agency, but it will never be perfect because this new phenomenon, to answer your question, that different generations have to deal with, the technology of social media, the, you know, the echo chambers that it creates, these are not going to go away. Probably it will get worse. It's going to get worse, but I was mentioning the locals and those people who are coming in. No, I don't think it's not only those people coming in, you know. Some of the locals are going backwards, you know, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you look around you, I think you, will, you can spot it. But for various reasons. For various reasons, they are. I can see it. Not a lot, fortunately, but there are some. So it doesn't mean that you're born in Singapore automatically, you know, uh, all is well, you know. I don't think it works that way. Are there any other final questions that you have? Any burning questions? Chilean news. Jillian, okay. Sure, master one, Jillian. She is the problem, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Janet. Uh, just on the point of spillover of politics from elsewhere here, I think we're looking at elections in the neighboring country as well. So just anticipating um, you know, anything that might happen that we should prepare ourselves for. Oh dear, I didn't know I was that incoherent. Everything I've been talking about is what you should prepare yourself for. I don't think it's a question of, uh, okay, you're talking about which, which election? Indonesian election coming, right? I don't think, no, I don't think, but you can see in Indonesian politics a greater use of religion, race. So you can maybe take lessons from that. Don't do, let it happen here. Because all these guys, they are, people always think that they can control these things. You can't. In the end, they control you. Uh, Indonesia is not as extreme as Malaysia because it's a larger place. Uh, uh, and Indonesia has a pre-Islamic culture which they have not denied. In fact, they are still quite proud of it. And that's a certain social balance. But it is drifting in that direction too. You saw it in the Jakarta governor's election. Now, Ahok was a bit stupid. Lah. I mean, if you are a Christian Chinese, don't quote the Quran, lah, please. <laughs> Why must you do that, right? But okay, he's stupid, right? So he, he paid the price. He's in jail. <laughs> but that was, you can, you can take that as a dress rehearsal for a certain political tactic that will probably be rolled out in the Indonesian election. Now, I don't think it will have the immediacy of, like, say, what happens in Malaysia, uh, on Singapore. But it, you can draw lessons from it, the right lessons. That means don't allow this to happen here. 
Not every politician in Singapore is immune from those temptations. Huh? If there are no other burning questions, Mr. Bilhari, thank you very much okay. for giving us very candid discussions of global threats or identity. And with that, thank you very much for joining us for this uh, forum. And I will hope to see you again in our future engagements. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before, before you leave, before you leave, please give us the feedback form um, or complete the feedback form in your booklet uh, and pass it on to the IPS staff. Um, and on that note, I would like to thank also the, the people who work um, tirelessly to sort of, uh, organize this uh, occasion. Um, Irene's team, Ariel's team, Judy's team um, for actually helping us uh, to, to organize this event. Thank you very much. See you again.